0: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our website. Sign up for SupChina access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in Washington, D.C. today at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, over the past few decades, as China's economy has continued to expand, charitable activity by corporations and foundations has also increased. Philanthropic activity by individuals, too, has grown as we should hope and expect it to. After all, China now boasts the world's largest number of billionaires 55, I think it was, in 2017. Once in a while, we read about surges of volunteerism, like after the 2008 Wenchuan earthquake, for instance, or another natural disaster here or there. Uh, international media will focus on somebody like Ali Wallace, jack Ma for you know, the large donations to environmental NGOs that he's made. Uh, but we'll also read about scandals that have caused many ordinary Chinese to be very skeptical. And we uh, read routinely about the casual brutality, the, the callousness, the pitifully low levels of trust in Chinese society. Meanwhile, the third sector, voluntary and nonprofit institutions, NGOs, you know, the mainstays of civil society, uh, they're really circumscribed uh, to a great extent in China. The party state regards these things with a certain ambivalence, sending that sector what my guest today has called the dual message of expectations and apprehension. Uh, That guest is Scott Kennedy, as uh, well-known in academia as he is in think tank land. Scott is senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics here at CSIS. His work covers a fantastically broad range of subjects, so it seems almost arbitrary that I've asked him to talk to me today about something like philanthropy rather than the trade war or all these other things that he works on, Uh, but until you, you learn that he was actually editor and a major contributor to a special China issue of Voluntas, which is the International Journal of Voluntary and Nonprofit Organizations. Uh, which is the official journal of the International Society for Third Sector Research, which you can download for free because it's an NGO, and they better goddamn give it free. <laughs> anyway, Scott, Scott Kennedy, welcome at Long Last to Seneca. We have meant to have you on for the longest time. Thanks so much, Kaiser. It's good to be with you. So uh, let's let's first talk about this volume that you edited for Voluntas, uh, which to judge from your contribution and um, from your nice summaries of the pieces in it, not all of which I have to confess I've actually managed to read, but I have to say it's, it's a lot more interesting uh, than I, I would have thought. I was kind of like prepared for total soporific powers. But anyway, you, you've actually been working, Scott, on, on philanthropy for, for quite some time now. Um, when you were still a professor at Indiana, right? Yes, that's, that's quite correct. In 2012,
1: we started this uh, initiative on philanthropy, Uh, When I was still at IU, uh, we did it together with the Center for Philanthropy at IU's Indianapolis campus, and they follow philanthropy throughout the world. So we collaborated to look at China, which was just uh, starting to build a philanthropic community uh, Mm -hmm. coming out of the 2008 Wenchuan earthquake. But starting to grow and, you know, more and more people getting wealthy and wanting to help address a lot of the social needs that weren't being met by the state. And so we brought together a a big group of experts from the United States and China, had a whole series of events, uh, sent off folks to do research. Then they turned around and produced some fantastic papers, which we put together in this
0: special issue that came out this summer. That's great. Well, let's, let's talk about what's in there. Let's start with some of the numbers uh, and try to get a sense of how fast this whole third sector has grown uh, by some of the different metrics that you shared in your research. Uh, is there an easy way to say whether philanthropy in China has grown at a pace that's commensurate with, with the growth of, of wealth? Yes, uh, it has grown quickly.
1: Uh, but it's still not where it could be. I think that's the best mm-hmm. summary. Uh, in 2006, before the earthquake, total philanthropy in China was 1.6 billion U.S. Wow, just just 1.6 billion U.S. Yes, and and 2017 it reached 22 billion dollars. So that's uh, a huge increase uh, in just over a decade. China now has 5,500 foundations. 37. 100 of which are private, the rest are sort of government-connected. Mm-hmm. There's 800-plus thousand uh, registered non-governmental organizations that help people. That's just registered, so probably people estimate about 1.5 million more unregistered NGOs. And China's wealthy. As you mentioned, there's more and more not only millionaires, but billionaires are big donors. I think Jack Ma was the first to create a philanthropic trust and several of his colleagues have followed after. That's a, it's a big number, but it's still not where it could be. It accounts for about 0.2% of Chinese GDP. Relative to the U.S., which is what? 2% of GDP. Wow. So, uh, I mean, China is a developing country in many ways at the per capita level, right? Not – I mean, you go to Beijing and Shanghai, you don't feel like it's developing. But nevertheless, uh, that means most of philanthropy in China is corporate, 65%. It's uh 35% individual in the U.S. The numbers are flip-flopped. Oh, wow. And so – uh, China is growing quickly, but it it has a long way to go before it is a
0: philanthropic powerhouse. So Scott, a couple of numbers jumped out at me about the expansion of NGOs, even during the last five years. I imagine that a lot of people would expect that the sheer number of nonprofits might have fallen off because of, of you know the NGO law, which we've talked about before on this show, and and the tightening political climate more generally. So this doesn't exactly appear to be the case. Uh, So how have NGOs fared, in other words, under Xi Jinping? How has charity fared? I guess one thing to say uh, is that
1: it's grown, but it's become more channeled into official organizations that the government is aware of and can monitor.
0: That makes sense. uh,
1: So I think the reason why the official numbers have continued to grow is a lot of unregistered organizations ended up registering. It doesn't mean that the whole universe of of organizations are are a lot more. I also think just one important thing, just to get to something that you mentioned, charity. So philanthropy, uh, part of philanthropy is charity. Philanthropy broadly is voluntary action for the public good. So that means not just uh, helping people out in times of disaster or when when they can't help themselves. It means public, you know, support for the public good, whatever that means, where others, where government or industry or others can't help. I think one of the interesting things that distinguishes China from elsewhere, we taught a class when I was at IU on philanthropy. And if you talk to Chinese about philanthropy, and you ask them, talk to them about volunteerism and what they do, Americans think about volunteer activity as the fact that they did it willfully, whereas Chinese think about it as they didn't get
0: paid. Uh, I was volunteered. I to. was
1: volunteer, And so you have lots of volunteer organizations in China in schools and universities, which Based are not voluntary to
0: participate in. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned right now that China is in many ways, at least on a per capita basis, still a developing country. Where is China comparatively when you look at levels of philanthropic activity compared to them to other countries at similar levels of development, however you want to measure that.
1: Uh, I would say in absolute numbers, again, because China's got 1.4 billion people and a class of extremely wealthy people, absolute numbers, relatively large. More interested in per capita, though. In per capita. It's it's actually, it just, if folks, I mean, if you say China has around 9,000, 10,000 per capita per year, that's it's pretty high. Yeah. Uh, but if you, there's a whole, there's a bunch of international indices that are used to measure philanthropy, not just donation, but volunteerism. And other types of activities, and in one from 2015, China ranked 144th out of
0: 145 countries. Well, that is not a good showing for China. No, so there are all sorts of different objects of philanthropic activity, of, of giving, of volunteerism in China. You got rural education, well, education more generally. You got poverty alleviation, of course, different environmental causes, everything from you know wildlife protection, specific species of, of, of animals, to wetlands protection. Cultural heritage preservation, the arts. Um, are there areas of philanthropic activity that have been particularly attractive for China's wealthy and for China's corporations? Absolutely.
1: By far, in a way, the number one place Chinese philanthropists are contributing is in education. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And in, in I mean, everyone knows how important education is uh, in China and how expensive it can be and how unevenly it is provided and so you have a provision of all different types of programming and funds particularly in rural china for uh, in villages also in cities for unregistered population folks that don't have residency permits where you see philanthropy for them new kinds of classes for all different kinds of training from young the very youngest to the oldest who who need job retraining right. it really is 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 quite phenomenal and it it far outstrips any of the other places Just where where there's philanthropy. At a rough measure, what, what does As it absorb? A, probably half of funding goes wow. to education. And then, you know, I mean, disaster relief is when there's a big disaster, then all the money uh, gets and effort gets channeled in those directions, uh, which, is, which isn't which is surprising. The government knocks on folks' doors and taps them on shoulders, and there's a lot of effort to, to demonstrate that you're helping, helping out. But far and away, the day-to-day – number one driver of philanthropy is education and then beyond that uh, health care is second huh arts and culture and funny enough I mean even is is environment is is like fifth or sixth which is surprising I think to a lot of people right yeah because I mean we all know about air pollution we know about china's water problems and and soil how much it contributes to climate change and it gets funding but it still doesn't come anywhere close to the amount of funding that goes into educational philanthropy
0: do you think that it's that's because of of a crowding out effect that so much giving is, is directed toward education, that it could be. I mean, maybe we'll see the, those numbers
1: rise. I think also some of the philanthropic activity, uh, you know, uh, if, if it may possibly run into government opposition local level, not just central, then people are maybe more careful. You can give to education till the cows come home and no one is going to be complaining about that. And, and it, everyone understands the educational gap in China that
0: needs to be met. What about if you're giving to, say, the children of migrant workers or programs designed to educate the children of migrant workers? I mean, I, when I was living in China, I was I felt like I was routinely reading about programs that were being shut down or defunded or... Uh, that that was sort of an unsafe area of of educational philanthropy.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious to see the numbers now. I just have the experience. I have a a friend of mine who uh, worked with a group to provide reading glasses uh, for for young kids in in, uh, migrant schools. Mm. And one of the Big obstacles uh, to learning is the fact that you, right. it's difficult to read, uh, especially if you can't see. And and so they did that. Now, when you operate in those marginalized communities, you have to be very, very careful. So you have to develop good relations with the local authorities to do that. And it presents challenges. Also, to co-op farming. Uh, you know, If you're going to potentially use land that someone may want for development – if you're using, especially like in the suburbs, uh, then that can run into problems. So, you yeah. can see all different kinds of potential challenges that will emerge
0: in the course of this very entrepreneurial activity, which all ties into the main theme I think of the essay that you contributed to this volume, and it's really something that threads throughout the whole the whole volume, which is you know this dual message of expectations and apprehension that I talked about. Right? Um, obviously, the party state does not. Frown on philanthropic activity more generally. I mean, they they want participation, they want a, a greater spirit of volunteerism, but not left to develop on its own without any party guidance, right? So, what are they so worried about? I mean, maybe you can frame this issue for us, give us some examples of the Chinese state being threatened by or or wary of uh, philanthropic activity.
1: Yeah, it's 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 one of the biggest challenges. I mean, I mean, everybody knows. That China's uh, over the last 40 years grown faster, longer uh, than ever before. China is now richer, stronger, safer, healthier than it's been in 200 years. But there's still gaps. There's lots of people that haven't won that are losers in this competition and the state can't cover everything. And the, and the government knows that, the party knows that, and they have countenanced philanthropy as a way to help fill that gap, to help buttress the legitimacy of the state, uh, to help to encourage uh, Chinese citizens to help each other and address their, their basic needs. At the same time, they want to make sure that all of that activity buttresses the rule of the party and doesn't challenge it Head on. Right. And this leadership, particularly under Xi Jinping, is more sensitive than ever, despite the fact, as I said, they're wealthier, safer than ever. But nevertheless, they want to make sure that there's no challenge to the authority. And so that's why they want everyone to register, while they want to have them focus on priorities that the state legitimates, uh, that they get approval. That they don't do things which they wouldn't like. So, for example, philanthropy can include a lot of different things. Actually, physically helping people, but in the United States and Europe, a huge part of philanthropy is just advocacy. Right. You know, so think of Greenpeace going out, putting up banners, and getting people to pay attention to issues uh, which they otherwise hadn't wouldn't pay attention to, and really trying to shape the agenda of governments around the world and of companies and others. In China, that is not encouraged. So, for example, in in environment and climate change, you get NGOs that participate in these type of activities, but
0: they're mostly about
1: execution, implementation. Right. It's like
0: uh, building an app to to track uh, supply chain greening or something like that. Yeah, those
1: those kind of things which fill gaps, uh, help address basic needs. But uh, Chinese philanthropists on the whole, are not reshaping the agenda of China. They are not engaging in uh, outright social justice. Uh, And so that is a big question that many folks who look at China as philanthropic community and ask, are they buttressing a system which we think uh, just needs a little bit more help to reform and fix the problems, or are they
0: helping a system stay in place that is basically unfair? Sometimes you do see... Activism, uh, philanthropy. For example, you'll see gigantic subway ad campaigns around banning elephant ivory or uh, rhinoceros horns or things like that, tigers. Uh, so big, sort of high profile. Charismatic megafauna. <laughs> yes, sure. Well, certainly. The, I mean,
1: China has signed on to all those relevant treaties, and 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 the central government would like to China to be a good actor, and and so those type of campaigns actually just seem to be consistent with with the broader official message. And so it's not so much that the state is suppressing philanthropy so much as trying to channel it into
0: ways that are supportive of it. Right. For example, let's let's look at poverty alleviation, which is a, a gigantic goal ahead of 2021. They want to absolutely eliminate rural poverty. Right. I mean, that's that's the goal. If you were, uh, let's let's take an extreme example, a foreign funded NGO, and you wanted to participate in this, would your participation be welcome or would it be suspect? Would they treat you like? Absolutely, would be supported. I'll just give you one example. Okay. So
1: Walmart so walmart uh, has helped create a research center in shanghai that looks at nutrition uh and then uh, so does research on it and then go and does research out in the field uh and is try- and shows that walmart is committed to supporting a population that is well fed can do all the things that they need and emphasizes this a, a great deal in their advocacy in china there are uh, other companies that support fresh water, clean water, all different types of things. And so those are accepted for multinationals that are in China. Just about every single one of them has some type of philanthropic element to, to what they do. Right. It's part of showing that they're in China for the long haul, that they care about the country, not just making a buck.
0: Do you feel like it's moving away from just sort of greenwashing CSR and toward you know, more genuine environmental or, or, or social commitments? Certainly, um, I think Western companies uh,
1: are highly cognizant of how the philanthropy they engage in, whether it's external uh, activities or or corporate social responsibility programs, affect their bottom line, affect people's sense of trust of that organization. And so they are quite strategic in what they do. On the other hand I think there's some genuine altruism. I think if you went, you know, in talking to companies, executives and your average folks that do this, they want to do well. They yeah. uh, they want to yeah. do good while doing well at the same time. The double bottom line. Right? Yes, that's right. Uh, we actually did a uh, part of what we did, and we we publish a little bit of the data in, in in Voluntas is is to examine the motives that companies have in in donating in China.
0: Yeah, I want to go into that study uh, in a little bit, but um, a couple more issues I want to explore with you before we we get to that. So so a multinational company can do it, come in, and the scope of its work is not going to be you know particularly challenged. We have a little more trouble when you have, say, a foreign-funded NGO that wants to do, say, say, rights protection or uh, that wants to do rule of law promotion. Even things that seem like, at least on paper, they're in line with party goals. We're we're starting to wander into, you know, a little more difficult territory. Obviously, you know, if you want to go to the real extremes, if you start talking about things like Tibetan cultural preservation, we start, you know— uh, encountering some real, real pushback from the state. It's it's tough, though. I mean, there are a lot of things that are in that gray area, though, in between these two extremes, right?
1: Yeah, I would call that that gray, er- gray area increasingly black. And there's... Hmm. Um,
0: Just off limits to foreign participation. Yeah, I,
1: th- yeah, I think if you put a, a list of potential projects in, in front of your general counsel or uh, folks back at HQ and, and gave them a sense of where China is politically... Uh, or you submitted it to the party committee of your company, for example, and you, you had help for minorities if you had t- helping rights lawyers and, and those that don't have legal defense or in vulnerable situations or massive public advocacy campaigns that could potentially embarrass authorities. Those are all kind of things essentially be off-limits. And and so Gender
0: issues, things like um, sexual harassment in the workplace, or...
1: Yeah, you'd have to be. You'd have to find the most benign, vanilla way to introduce those topics. I mean, I, I think that's one of the signs of of the new era under Xi Jinping, is that a lot of the gray has has become black, hmm. and and that the, the the boundaries are are less ambiguous than they they were before. It used to be. If there wasn't a rule against it, you'd do it until someone told you not to. Right. I think now, if there's not a clear rule, you don't do it because you're worried that you could get squashed. Right. And so I think um, that's why, even though the numbers have, have risen in terms of overall philanthropy, I think the channeling of it means that there are still significant gaps in what philanthropy is trying to address. And it's getting the low-hanging fruit. The easy things, which are very important. I mean, helping reduce poverty and expand educational opportunity, helping those who can't afford health care uh, receive basic support. Those are all really important. But there's other areas that are still out of bounds that aren't being addressed. Just one other thing that's really interesting is, is social entrepreneurship. Mm. And this has grown first in the U.S. and Europe, but is in China, where you create organizations which are supposed to create a profit, but also, as an inherent part of their business goals, serve the public good. Microcredit so, lending. Mi- yes, yeah. uh, uh, co-op farming. Co-op farming, exactly. Uh, a whole variety of things. And, and talking to the folks that do these things, they're actually extremely creative and smart, but they run into really difficult challenges in China in terms of the tax laws, in terms of local authorities, other stakeholders, not necessarily because the center says... You shouldn't do it, but they run into somebody with power someplace that gives them a hard time. So,
0: yeah, we, we've talked quite a bit now about the political impediments to, to doing philanthropic work in China. What would you identify uh, as some of the other ones? Are there, for example, uh, cultural impediments? I mean, I, I've, I don't know how, where you would put something like the okay. fact that China is an extremely low-trust environment or – uh, just the sort of brutal ethos of I'm going to screw you before you screw me. Um, <laughs> you no, know, I mean, I, yeah, seriously, so yeah. I, I, I think I would think that that would affect attitudes toward it. And obviously there is a lot of skepticism. You know, this 2016 charity law, it seems to have been in part at least a reaction to some of these abuses, perceived abuses at least. So maybe you could talk about some of, of, of what sure. led to that. Sure. Well, I mean, certainly there's um... – I Mean
1: low trust in China and concern uh, about getting ahead i I tend to see these things less as millennial long inherent traits' no, no, they're sc- not, uh, yeah. placed in people 's DNA from which they can 't change. I really see the political social environment as is changing these things and and the arrow is pointing in both both ways. Um, just as an example um, uh, Chinese uh, foundations. Have very low transparency. Uh, They have, uh, it's very hard to to read their books. It's very hard to believe money, the numbers on them, just like Chinese companies, right? But one of the reasons for doing that is if you report everything that you do, you're potentially going to run into problems or have outsiders tell you what you should and shouldn't do. So they're very, you know, usually vague or inaccurate with, with what they report. And so in, in global standards, Chinese uh, the transparency of Chinese organizations are very low. Right. And so that's why when you survey Chinese and you say, who do you trust? Who do you not trust? Folks from Chinese NGOs tend to rate very low on the scale. So the, for, the, NGO, the charity law was meant to try and bring some of that into the light of day, to have some standards uh, so that not only could government appropriately audit NGOs uh, but so that the public would trust them more and so you've got to have a little bit more transparency and clarity and consistency uh, for that uh, I think uh, you know it's been very difficult for example for Chinese NGOs and foundations to hire career staff it's right. not a career of uh, you know philanthropic activities the way it is in the United States most fa- many foundations that are part of companies in China actually use their corporate executives to simultaneously staff the foundation, there's a conflict of interest uh, waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah. It also means that uh, these aren't people who really are experts in delivering philanthropy. Uh, that is, It's actually not a simple task of just saying, let's all get together on one weekend
0: and go off and help this group. That's it's, right. It
1: requires a, a great deal of planning.
0: And, and they're, they're really, they're put in a bind by the fact that the 2016 charity law actually limits the amount of administrative expenditure, right? It caps it at Ten percent. Ten percent. Yes. And so you're basically doomed never to have professionalism in a lot of these organizations. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is the rule of unintended effects. Uh,
1: they're worried that NGOs and foundations were absconding with donations,
0: and so and probably some were. And yeah, there's actually one high-profile case involving a woman named Guo Meimei who apparently was you know. Claiming some connection to the Chinese Red Cross, and uh, had had you know conspicuously spent all this money on this and that, and was boasting about it online, and, and she got called out. But it seemed to really lower kind of trust in in something as foundational as the Red Cross.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that was that must have been 2011 or 12. Yeah, yeah. That's yes, about yeah. Right. And so, um, and and there were some fu- uh, found philanthropic organizations that do research that also were connected to that case in in. In in ways that also reduce people's trust, just in the whole field it, itself. But it, it is incredibly important. So I think those of us who want China to succeed and address its challenges want its philanthropic sector to be healthy. Yet it contains some of the same pathologies of the society and system as a whole, and and philanthropy and, and therefore philanthropy is never going to be where it needs to be uh, until this sort of dual treatment of philanthropic actors uh, changes, and you see uh, greater willingness to allow uh, more variety and activities that aren't necessarily serving uh, the state's needs at the moment.
0: Right. So we've talked a little bit about uh, foreign NGOs and charitable giving into China. Actually, Mark Seidel wrote a piece on the 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 – NGO law, right, which we've talked about, again, like I said, on this program. Um, First, what were the major takeaways from from Seidel's piece?
1: I think basically uh, what Mark uh, wrote, he's uh, University of Wisconsin Law School, really one of the leading authorities on uh, philanthropic law in Asia, not just in in China, uh, is is that there's a really good reason uh, for China to come up not only with the charity law, but the foreign NGO law in 2016. They'd been operating on a, a string of of temporary guidelines uh, that overlapped, conflicted with each other, and you had a lot of regulation falling between the cracks. And, and so first of all, the need for regulation to address problems of, of governance and, and supervision and of service provision. Right. But secondly, I think, as we've already said, some significant restrictions uh, on what can and can't be done. And the transition from one era to the next era uh, is, is going to be challenging for folks to come out the light of day to, to register, to come into full compliance. It may end up being a healthier but smaller sector, or it may end up, if it's implemented in the wrong way, a sector which is smaller and also uh, not helping folks the way they need to. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: one thing that, that receives some attention in the US and other international press is Chinese giving overseas. Uh, and I've seen some examples of this, like uh, after the Kathmandu earthquake, uh, the Kathmandu Valley earthquake, there was, you know, the companies were kind of falling over one another to, to do things. So, where is Chinese philanthropy going when it does go abroad? So uh, so one of our contributors, uh, Denguo
1: Sheng, who's a professor at Tsinghua University, absolutely fantastic grade-A scholar and human being, wrote his article on Chinese philanthropy abroad. Right. And it's, it's pretty impressive for a country, again, with as low per capita income as China for, to be going abroad. Uh, most of that work is in Africa. Uh, and, Not surprisingly. And yeah. following – Again, not surprisingly, uh, where most of Chinese investment in Africa is going. And so you'll see, alongside infrastructure projects, mining, uh, other projects, you'll see investment in hospitals, in education, uh, other types of, of similar gifts. Uh, in addition, China has, I forget the name of this ship, but China has circling the world a peace ship. Which provides healthcare around the world. And they've served, provide service in over 100 plus countries. Wow. And uh, so, really, really quite impressive level of, of medical service. Chinese uh, doctors and nurses, clinicians going around the world, treating people in very difficult circumstances, all over the place. But, nevertheless, again, it's, it's a two sided story. Yes, there's an amazing amount of growth, but it's still largely top down. It's not just folks figuring out, hey, what's the need? In one place uh, or somewhere else, and 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 going forth, they are clearing everything back home.
0: You talked earlier about a survey that you guys had commissioned about some some uh, interesting server research that you had done um, in 2014. You uh, commissioned a survey of 700 uh, 700 companies, is that right? Yes. Uh, looking at, at the reasons why they they give, and it was really interesting to me, although not altogether surprising, that there's a, a pattern that emerges between the motivation, the reasons that they say they give, and actual philanthropic behavior. Can you, can you talk about that and, and some of the other interesting correlations that that survey surfaced? Sure. When, when companies give, uh, they couldn't be
1: motivated by one of three general motivations. One is trying to do good, altruism. Another would be helping their business, helping its bottom line. And third would be, Politics, improving their relationship with the government or the party, and so this is something that occurs everywhere, as we m- mentioned before. And the question is, is: China, similar or different from anywhere else? What what motivates Chinese companies to give? And so you'd assume, given that it's China, that it's hundred percent politics. <laughs> uh, and you know, we're doing a survey, so you know, we've got one stranger asking another stranger about. Why their company is giving? We didn't do the survey. Horizon uh, did it, and and, you know we bought the data from them. But nevertheless, so but what we found uh, in the survey uh, is is that you know companies generally say that they're giving for altruistic reasons. Yet they also say, uh, secondarily, that they're giving for political reasons—that they're trying to improve the relationship with the government show that they're doing things that are consistent with government goals. It's interesting. Companies almost never say that they're doing this for business, uh, for their yeah. bottom line. And But it turns out that when you look at their actions, because we uh, the survey also asked how much did you donate, that companies are equally motivated by altruism and politics when you take into account what they actually do. Uh, And that makes Chinese companies relatively similar to companies in the rest of the world, except for state-owned enterprises. State-owned enterprises stand out as being almost entirely driven by political motives (laughs) compared to their private and foreign brethren in China, and uh, not only in terms of of how much they give, but when they give. Uh, State-owned enterprises give primarily to address uh, disasters, and that's when the state again,
0: expects, most ex- right, yeah, right, expects
1: right. everyone to come out. And and so there's that huge difference between state-owned enterprises on the one hand and and everybody else.
0: That's fascinating. Um, do you think that it's possible to draw some comparisons between philanthropy under different regime types? Do you think that we have enough data globally to look at it? I mean, you hinted that in your paper. I'm wondering how far you'd be willing to take that at this point, just based on what you sure. know. Sure.
1: Um, I mean, if, if you hold wealth constant, and of course, you can't do that in real life. But generally, you would expect, and I think the record shows that in democracies where the state isn't trying to dominate and you have limited government with limited powers and limited abilities, philanthropy is larger. It's particularly large in the United States because of the tradition of philanthropy in the U.S. And I think it's interesting, you know, in China, you know, if you go back to the early 19. 19- 90s, uh, when just after Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour, that's when they were thinking, well, what does a modern society look like? Right. And so they came up with stock markets, bond markets, credit rating agencies. They came up with philanthropy, and you saw a burst of studies about all the different elements of the third sector and and civil society. And you know, despite the fact that we have very different traditions, political traditions. In many ways, China was trying to model its contemporary society's major components based on what it saw in the United States. Of course, when you do that, you get something quite different on the other side. <laughs> uh, but they weren't—they weren't looking at sort of a European model, a German model for philanthropy. They're really looking at the U.S. And, and if you look at all the courses that are taught in China or the he, the research centers in China that work on philanthropy, all of those folks. Went to major centers of philanthropic studies at Harvard, uh, Stanford, the East West Center in Hawaii, and elsewhere in the United States, and they brought back those ideas with them. And and a lot of those ended up, you know, in the, the charity law.
0: Right. So there are obvious ways in which China could not possibly resemble the United States, and I, I'm I i do not know about the percentage of of ph- philanthropic activity in America that is from faith based organizations, but that's one area where I imagine it's, it's quite different from in China. Uh, are, is, for example, the officially sanctioned Catholic Church in China a major philanthropic organization? It
1: engages in some degree of, of charity work, but it's not a big donor. What, mm-hmm. Where you will see big donations is in temples. Okay, yeah. Right? And And particularly... Along uh, the southeastern coast of China, where, and, in Fujian yeah, yeah. and Zhejiang, and you'll find lots of wealthy entrepreneurs who uh, interact with uh, temples, and they rebuild these temples. The temples engage in charity and other types of good works in their communities. That's quite significant, but but you're not going to see so-called Western religions engaging in
0: broad-based philanthropy on the scale that you'll see it
1: uh, in the United States.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Scott, if you were advising graduate students about fruitful and important areas of inquiry in this field of philanthropy, uh, what are some of the topics you think you would steer them toward? There are some issues simply about the evolution of philanthropy
1: in China that we still need to understand. Um, Social entrepreneurship, I mentioned already, these new types of, of ways of of, of activism, of, of helping society. Uh, how well or poorly are they doing? How uh, successful are they? Uh, popular attitudes. We don't really know a heck of a lot of, about popular attitudes uh, toward philanthropy and volunteerism and how it's changed over the last several years. But I think the biggest gaps we have, and where I think some of the most interesting work can be done, is in comparing trends in China to trends elsewhere to get at that question that you just asked about, where does China fit in the world? Yeah. So taking certain types of organizations in China and comparing them with their cousins in India and in Brazil and Russia and the United States, broad-based comparisons, or if you've got a lot of data just sitting around and you can crunch some numbers, I, I tend to feel more comfortable actually getting out in the field and going to several different places. And if you can isolate you know, certain cities in China with certain cities in other places, you know, Hangzhou uh, in China with Bangalore in India or, or something like that, then then you can actually really uh, focus in on, on the similarities and differences and, and try and hold a lot else constant. So really figuring out how China is similar or different. And then there are also some really interesting historical comparisons. So I think this is an area in which there's been so little – there's been a lot written that's descriptive, not a heck of a lot that's analytical or and very little that's comparative.
0: Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, Scott, in in your day-to-day these days, uh, you're not dealing a whole bunch with philanthropy now here at CSIS. Uh, your day-to-day is involved very much in the trade war is there an overlap? I mean, are you seeing, for example, any impact of the trade war and the economic pressures that it's putting on China on philanthropic activity or on the ability, for example, of US-based NGOs to direct or to to coordinate charitable giving in China?
1: It's an unanswered question uh, that that is great that you asked. Uh, My sense, anecdotally, talking to companies, uh, is, is that they are very careful about what they're doing in China uh, across the board, um, and they are checking, rechecking absolutely everything that they do. Um, and I think the tra- what the trade war has done is created a level of uncertainty about uh, companies and their futures in China, and therefore that has probably made them a little bit more hesitant about engaging in philanthropy because... You may, on the one hand, trying to be proving your legitimacy and commitment to China. on the one hand, on the other hand, there may be others outside China looking at that philanthropic work and thinking, "Oh, you're proving your commitment to China as it's currently ruled. Are you sure that that's what you want to send the world as as your right. global message?" Uh, so I think uh, companies you know this is oftentimes their public relations offices or government affairs folks. That they must be conflicted. And so every element of US China relations is is coming under scrutiny. Your business, people to people exchanges, education, uh, legal exchanges, f- uh, philanthropy must
0: uh, yeah, be it's no su- feeling it the same also kind of suffers. squeeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really unfortunate. Well, Scott Kennedy, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, let's move on now to the recommendations segment of our program. But first, I want to remind listeners that. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. This thing is just chock full of great reads all about China delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, Jiayun, that team does an amazing job. They just really work very hard to deliver great value for money. So sign up, spread the word, and, and show your support. Okay, on to recommendations. Scott, what do you have for us?
1: I want to recommend something uh, for folks to watch, uh, even though I have mixed feelings of, about it. And sorry to, to begin with that kind of advertisement. <laughs> but there is um, a, a, there have been a slate of documentaries that have come out on China uh, recently. I think most folks already have heard about American Factory. Yeah, I've recommended and, it before. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And so I want to recommend that people uh, watch The China Hustle. Mm. Which is uh, a documentary about short sellers and and China uh people probably maybe have heard of muddy waters yeah, it's
0: the most famous or infamous one that's yeah.
1: right, you're right and so um i there's two messages that come out of out of this documentary one is wall street is is crooked and pushing the uh stocks of Chinese companies on American investors who who don't know any better and are taken to the cleaners and the second. And Which is the, these folks step in and try and help them. Uh, the second message is is that companies in China are all fraudulent and, and China is in some ways a Potemkin village. I think the first message uh, probably has more legs than the second, but I think both messages are going to resonate in this political era. Uh, true, the, or uh, true or not. True or not. Right. And and so I, I'm, I'm encouraging people to watch it because lots of folks are going to see it and ask questions about it. And you have one of the smartest audiences around that need to engage with everybody, not just in the China community. And so they need to understand what is China like uh, and, and how do you separate the fraud from the reality, the truth. Uh, from the fiction, the myth, from the reality. Those are things that are really important. If you want to convey a complex, nuanced message of, about China, which is how I I look at the country, um, then we have to educate ourselves and watch what everyone else is watching uh, so that we can have that type of conversation, even those very difficult conversations.
0: Great. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen that yet. But, boy, I have my opinions about Muddy Waters and, and the whole lot of those. Uh, I think they're they're right sometimes, often for the wrong reasons. They're right. Uh, we'll sure. talk about that <laughs> another time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I mean I, I would agree
1: that uh, sometimes I would say what what I what I take a lot of sympathy from them from the movie uh, because they're definitely well intentioned. Uh, I mean, yes, they want to folks to short sell and they'll make a bunch of money, but I think the original <laughs> motive is they saw uh, a bunch of stocks being pushed. By uh, small banks on Wall Street, without anyone really knowing what was behind those companies, yeah. and so in that regard, it it it's doing uh, a, a public service. On the other hand, if you go too far and just simply make it a business strategy, then you're as bad as the folks that you're attacking in the first place. Uh, but and and so and as one person in the movie says, no one in that story are the good guys.
0: Right, right, right. I think they had a couple of of early and important. Correct calls. Uh, and they, they did call a couple of just utterly fraudulent companies. Uh, Forest something. I can't remember what was the name of that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And and then after that, though, I, I, I feel like uh, they had a hammer in their hand and everything started looking very nail-like. Uh, um, it did. It did. Yeah, yeah. And But we I, – I, anyway, I'm calling on
1: your, your audience who are really smart to, to watch this with a sensitive eye yeah. and be ready to talk to folks who in this era – where we challenge all sources of authority to be ready to have that kind of conversation and see if they can say, you know what, yes, there's lots of companies and organizations in China which don't do the right thing, but there's lots that actually are trying and developing that kind of mixed picture. And I think that's, if if we're going to have an argument, a position in the United States and the West, which is we need to try to con- continue to engage China uh, and not just simply decouple uh, because it's it's too messy and complicated and dangerous, then we're going to have to school up on all the different arguments of folks who are simply universal critics and then come up with a way to explain them that says conditional engagement is, is still better uh, than the alternatives.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, so I want to recommend one essay in particular, but also really her whole body of, of, of work um, – the, the writer's name is Yangyang Cheng. Uh, she wrote recently on Sinophile a birthday letter to the People's Republic. Uh, the day that we're recording is the day before October 1st. It's September 30th today. And, and uh, so she wrote this quite moving, uh, very heartfelt piece uh, about her conflicted relationship with her, the country of her birth. She's a particle physicist of all things and a brilliant writer, really just quite, quite good. In a very short time, she's made her voice a very important one, uh, whether she's been writing on science, on politics, on, on the the constant unresolvable tensions of just being a, a modern thinking Chinese person in the world um, caught between the United States and China.
1: I, I think that's really important. Just to mention, you mentioned she's a particle physicist. Many uh, folks who end up challenging the authority of governments, Started out as theoretical physicists. Yes, I Andrei see, yeah. Sakharov, yeah, Von Liger. Von Liger, yeah yes, yeah, and and, see, and others.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I guess it's they they they're steeped in. Um, Quantum, the sort of unknowability of things, or so. Well, at the they're trying to explain things at their very
1: smallest level or at the largest cosmological level, and usually you've got to come up with with theories uh, that explain that, and they usually run afoul of Marxist theories about how the world started.
0: She certainly is no Marxist, um, but she, I think, she's a subtle thinker. I don't always agree with her, but most of the time she's she's very much on, and I, I highly recommend her. She, and fortunately, she's been writing a lot for SubChina, so you can find a lot of her writing uh, on our website. All right, I'm there. All right, Scott. Hey, man, it was great to talk to you finally. Finally get you on the show. I mean, I can't believe all these years we've, we've kept missing. Well,
1: but- I, I'm really glad that we finally did it, and hopefully uh, it went well enough that you'll have me back again.
0: Oh, I absolutely will. Thanks very much. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at subchina news, and make sure to check out our other podcasts. There's the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, which comes out every week, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, New Voices and for Talk, the Middle Earth Podcast, which is all about the culture industry in China, and of course, our brand new family member, Strangers in China. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.